Sponsored by A to Z Wineworks. From asparagus to zucchini, there's hardly a food that doesn't pair beautifully with A to Z Wineworks cool climate Oregon wines. A to Z's Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Chardonnay are ridiculously food friendly. For any occasion or any cuisine, A to Z Wine works. Find out why at A to Z Wineworks.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. The term off the grid usually conjures images of people who are lefter than left, eschewing technology and seeking to live with as small an environmental footprint as possible. But as Ted Conover describes in his August cover story for Harper's Magazine, that's not the whole picture. Conover, who famously went undercover as a USDA meat inspector for the May 2013 issue, spent many months among the off-the-grid homesteaders in Colorado's San Luis Valley, most of whom love their guns, legal weed, and solar panels. Though their lives are difficult and marked by poverty, the homesteaders take pride in their self-sufficiency and love the freedom that the valley offers. I spoke to Conover about writing the piece and the limitations of reporters who only drop into the middle part of the country during election season. How was this particular story and immersing yourself in the world of these off-the-grid homesteaders different from other pieces you've done besides the obvious of that you didn't have to get like certified to inspect meat or whatever? Right. I guess you need some specific and often expert knowledge to succeed in both worlds, whether it's off the grid in the San Luis Valley or, yeah, working for the USDA in a cattle plant. But um, the big difference is that reporting was essentially undercover. Uh, Nobody you know, starting with the USDA, but continuing with everybody I met, nobody knew I was there in order to write about it um, because I wouldn't have gotten the job otherwise. That can be exciting, I guess, but this is much um, preferable as a reporting strategy because I'm up front with everybody about who I am, what I'm doing, how much I don't know, how much I'd like uh, them to teach me. And so, yeah, they have things in common, but there's also a lot that was not in common. The cool thing about this piece about the San Luis Valley is that La Puente, the social service group, let me volunteer for them as a rural outreach worker. So I actually had a job to do. I had responsibilities and people had expectations of me, which I had to meet. And, and it raised the stakes too, because being an outreach worker in the valley involves a lot of cold calls of showing up at the you know little property of somebody who might be kind of suspicious of strangers and open the door with a firearm in their hand or have dogs chained up just outside and um, you ha- it, it focuses your attention pretty much to have to deal with that several times a day. So um, that was, that made it more interesting. Dealing with people who are hesitant to talk to outsiders 
Um, was it more difficult to get information out even after you had, say, introduced yourself and made clear what you were trying to accomplish or just in general, given how the Internet allows us to know so, so much about everybody at a drop of the hat? Yeah, so that's the other thing. You can't, you know, if you're going to use your real name, you can't be undercover anymore because people Google you, even in, even people living on a few hundred dollars a month in the middle of nowhere, you know, their, their smartphone has a cellular data plan and, and they Google. So it led to some suspicions. I usually get to know them a little bit and then explain that I was writing about my experience and if they were willing, could I interview them? Most people said yes, but sometimes, you know, there were people who, who very much didn't want publicity. And I don't think it, I think a lot of times it's because they didn't want the larger world to know where they are. Mm -hmm. There's, there's lots of people running from various things, whether it's, um, criminal charges or um, relationship problems or yeah, some other kind of past that they would like to leave behind. So you have to be really careful and not get too personal too soon. You mentioned a few times in the piece that part of your interest in life in the San Luis Valley comes from the feeling that, as you put it, quote, if the last presidential election taught me anything, it's that journalists based in New York need to pay attention to life outside cities, end quote. So in, term, so in terms of understanding that divide between rural and urban America, and in a way that's not just sort of like dropping in to check in on an election or just going to talk to Trump supporters because you need some Vox Pop from the Trump supporters, how would you distill what you learned? This repeating experience I had was getting to know somebody without discussing politics with them. And then, uh, you know, in the middle of a conversation about something else, being surprised by a negative comment about um, Obama or about Hillary or just, you know, the offhand, thank God Trump's building that wall with the assumption that I would agree. And, um, you know, I'm a person who cares a lot about politics, but I understand that foregrounding my politics is not the best way to get to know people who see life differently. So I again and again be in this position of being surprised by the passion of a person who I had liked and gotten along with, who revealed they, that we disagree profoundly on, you know, the very facts of American political life. And, and so I've had to try to bridge that divide about a thousand times in reporting the piece. And again and again, I think I come to the point where I don't think we're all that different, but I think we live in a world where the ways in which political opinions are communicated, you know, in social media or television, polarize us and and that you know they create camps that 
would not otherwise be there and weren't there 10 years ago. And, and I think as long as you've gotten to know somebody first offline, you can often bridge those gaps. You can understand some of their passion for a wall or some of their anger over the decline of their own circumstances because, you know, that's such a common story. Somebody had a good job and now there's no jobs or um, somebody had a good job, but now the government's all about giving those jobs to people who aren't uh, white people or native born. There's all this resentment about supposed partiality against white people. And um, it, has led to many, many conversations where basically, I guess, I, I feel I empathize without agreeing. I really um, don't make a point of my disagreement. I make a point of looking for things we both feel the same about. But yeah, it's very different to be a reporter dropping in on the local diner when the presidential candidate is in town from being a person just watching TV and and hearing somebody in the room say something snide about uh, President Obama, who I uh, continue to like a lot. And so, yeah, you, you hold your tongue and then you you try to see where this negativity is coming from and why the current regime does not upset them the way it upsets me. Right. I mean, where where do you feel like that's coming from? Because it's not like, I mean, some people have electricity, some don't. Is there like sort of a conservative talk radio or is it like when they are in town, there's like Fox News on the TV? Like what what is it? Oh, yeah. You get Fox News in the middle of nowhere um, without cable here um, through the you know hd broadcast signals all you need is an old-fashioned antenna and a little box and you can watch the same tv that people in cities do but i'd say the internet is almost uh engaged with as much and and even facebook you know i guess we all know that we are all in our own silos these days and yeah, the silos out here include the naturalness of wanting to own firearms and astonishment at the new Green Deal. I was asked um, last month how Ocasio-Cortez, is she serious about capturing methane from cattle by attaching some sort of device to them? And this is actually not an aspect of the... Uh, uh, Green New Deal that I was aware of, and I think they have misstated it. But yeah, people ask me with incredulity about AOC. You're from New York City. How do you, um, what do you think about her? And she's like a, this great boogeyman. And I say, oh, I think it's good to have fresh voices in the mix. It's good to have young women who aren't like the old time politicians speaking their minds. And but you know. To them, it's, it's like talking about Hitler or something. They are so poised to attack. And it, yeah, it it's, um, takes some getting used to. But it's also not 
unanimous. There are are several people out here who are definitely on the Democratic side of things and, and, and post that on Facebook and they're friends with other people who disagree with them. So it's like a lot of small towns where there are people who disagree who have to live in close proximity and, and they find a way, right, to, to not talk politics, I guess. Yeah, and I think the important thing to keep in mind is that these are people who really have nothing. They have very little at all. And I'm not saying, like, fear is sort of a natural sort of state to fall into, but just that when you see someone who is proposing expanding the government and you hate the government and you're afraid of the government and you believe that the government will tyrannize you, then it is a totally natural reaction to be like, oh, like, she's Hitler. Right, right. Or, you know, the fact she went to a well-known East Coast university puts her in the company of the kind of elite that they associate Obama or Hillary Clinton with, right? Or even the Bushes, the Yale connection and that whole thing, you know, that's the Donald Trump is of course from an elite class, but it's a different one. It's, you know, a military academy and, and real estate. And so there's a lot of alienation here from elites and for centuries or a couple centuries, it's ra- you know, it's made people raise eyebrows to say you're from New York, the old of course. <laughs> trope of, of the dude, the city slicker who knows nothing. People have a lot of fun with that still. But, you know, the real thing is this whole idea that you went to a good college and I may not have finished high school and we are growing further and further apart. And it's it, it's under the Clintons and Obama, they say, that that that, that really got going. So it's an interesting perspective on American life. And yet to blame the inequality that has left so many people poor on elites in the Democratic Party is something, you know, I do not hear parties in New York City. Yeah. And I wanted to touch more on this feeling of this divide between city and country, the rural and the the busy East Coast. I mean, because you write the fear of power of government manifests as a generalized kind of unease, which I imagine was less a feature of life on the American frontier 100 years ago than it seems today. Why do you feel that way? Because I think a lot of, and this is not just because I've been watching Deadwood, but I've been, I feel like a lot of uh, people who were pioneers really did want to try and escape government, not just from some place in Europe or some place in the East, but just like kind of get as far away from the the idea of government as possible and no, make you're, their own way. You're right. In fact, I've been watching the second season of Deadwood oh, um, so this summer. I hadn't watched it before. And, <laughs> and, right, and right now, yes, the uh, corrupt authorities from from the North are coming down and, and um, remaking the world in uh, you know, to their advantage. And it is not at all a new thing. And you can think of prohibition and the revenuers, right? Trying to tax um, harmless home stills and all kinds of ways in which people have resented American government. But 
you know, when I'd go out with Matt Little, the outreach worker for La Puente, and we'd meet county code inspectors in Castilla County, these guys wear bulletproof vests. They have big rifles, AR-15s in their SUVs, and they've been shot at. And they they are responding, you know, by becoming militarized and things can really heat up in a sort of crazy way very quickly. There's a lot of sympathy out here for the takeover of that bird refuge in Oregon a couple of years ago and for the Bundys. And there's a lot of BLM land here, which has kept a lot of the landscape sort of pristine and beautiful. But I'm one, I'm in the minority of those out here who seem to be glad about that. There's just a lot of resentment that the land is not available to make money with. And I'd say the government is probably a lot bigger, certainly in terms of public lands, than it was 100 years ago. Um, But in other ways, you're right. There has for a long time been a skepticism about the power of Washington as you head to less settled parts of the country. You bring up Matt Little, and he's a he's a veteran of the Gulf War who became a case manager for La Puente, which is the social safety net out in the valley. And he sort of serves as your guide to the area, and he kind of exposes the tension that we're just talking about, that there's the service mentality of the of La Puente, and then there's the independence and uh, and self reliance that these residents have, and it's why they're out there. Um, mm-hmm. So, at what point did you? At what point did it become clear to you that he would sort of become this central character? You know, like how did you sort of know that as a journalist you had found your subject? <laughs> well, for one thing, his work is totally dramatic. You know, he, he drives out into the middle of nowhere and sizes up the risk of approaching a particular house using all these signs, right? Are there, are there children there as evidenced by toys outside? Are there dogs? If there's an American flag showing, he takes a guess that there's firearms inside. He, he takes, it's a challenge to him though. Like the more danger signs, the more, the more signs that say, if you can read this, I've got you in my sights, right? Which it says in one house that uh, he was telling me about approaching. It took him about two months before the guy would talk to him, but the guy did. And to Matt, that's, that's a challenge. And I've got to say, it's sort of like the challenge of journalism writ large, getting possibly hostile strangers to talk to you is what I do um, or have done again and again in my longer immersive pieces. And, and Matt's kind of doing it a different way. But as you say, on behalf of a service-oriented organization, and he hates using that. He hates using that terminology. He says, service is what you do in a restaurant. I'm not serving them in a restaurant. They're not my clients. They're my neighbors. I live out here too. Um, they're my people. And so he insists on this different language. And at first I, 
I was thinking, oh, maybe Matt should start using the organization, La Puente's language, and he'll fit in better because he just started. But then I realized how central it was to the whole way he looks at the world. As you know, in the story, I write about a monthly meeting that La Puente had that sometimes has group exercises. And there's this exercise once where the objective was for people to come out and say that if they needed help, they would ask for it. Basically, the leaders of the workshop wanted us to examine our own possible reluctance to asking for help. And you can see why that makes sense. If you need some help, you should ask for it. But from Matt's point of view, not asking for help is the hallmark of a self-sufficient person. It's, um, it's what he did, that is not ask for help, when his family was running low on food in West Virginia. He'd go out and, and shoot a deer and, and um, bring home venison. He often comments that the closer his people live to town, sort of the more likely they are to ask for things, you know, whether it's extra blankets or help getting a prescription or other things he can provide. But the ones who are furthest out are not in the habit of asking. They're in the habit of making do on their own. It doesn't always mean they're healthier. It doesn't always mean their kids are living better. I mean, there's all so many good reasons to ask for help, but it's enshrined in Matt's worldview that self-sufficiency is sort of number one. That's what you should be about if you are living out there. And I'm, I'm like, you know, Matt, I live in New York City and interdependence is it's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. We, you know, we share the cost of electricity. We all pay for the cost of water. It's a, uh, you can look at it as being big companies charging us for these things, but in fact, it's a sort of social good and we all pay into it and we all get something from it. And that's the whole idea of taxes, which I kind of think are not always a bad thing. And he looks at me like I'm a little bit crazy or brainwashed or I've spent too much time in a city. And so I get it. You know, I, there is something admirable in depending on yourself and being resourceful and making do right. Um, he lived, he lived in a camper insert on the back of his pickup truck with his schizophrenic son for a whole winter, right before I met him. And he said that he didn't consider himself homeless. He was just minimizing expenses till he got his next job. So he rejects all those categories of being needy or being homeless. He thinks if you can work, you can work. You shouldn't get food stamps if you can work. Yeah, we. But he's just endlessly interesting to me, and I, I like him a lot, and we, we disagree. But I'm actually out here right now, and I talked to him this weekend, and, uh, you know, he's one of my better friends in the world, professional or otherwise. So I don't think I would have met him back in the city. <laughs> in the piece you write that, you know, there's no official count, but there seems to be more people choosing to live off the grid. What gives you that impression? I mean, you know, you just said you're visiting again, but 
what what do you think are the potential causes of this increase? There's at least two or three. Um, a big one in Colorado is the legalization of marijuana, which you know lets people grow twelve plants or more under certain circumstances, and and out here there's huge amounts of sunlight, and if you can get enough water, you can really grow some great weed. And many, or I'd say most people do. Um, and that includes not just, you know, young stoners, but people who are older and suffering, you know, from cancer. There's lots of belief that THC can cure cancer. There's a whole sort of practically a religion around it. So that has brought people off grid because you can grow your own and it's, it can, you can do it really successfully if you, if you pay attention and if it doesn't get stolen. The other difference I think is um, solar panels because they have gotten really cheap in the last 10 years or so. And that lets you live far from electricity. And um, thanks Obama. <laughs> and the the five acre lots that much of the valley was divided into in the 70s they really you know many sold through magazine ads and stuff but few were inhabited until i don't know everyone just says about 10 years ago the flow started in five years ago it got really strong and i think there's a sort of off-grid ethos which at its um, fancy end is Earthships, and at its basic uh, frontiersman end is old trailers and some home-wired solar panels and not having to work. That's, that's another part of it. It's not hippie-like. It's, it's more just, let's, let's get off the hamster wheel and let's let's live a different way. And that, that feeling uh, is really strong out here. I'm not, I'm not super familiar with the economy of marijuana, but is, yeah. is it actually, given how many people can potentially grow their own, is it better than other places? Is it something where it's like people are really able to survive in a way that's not totally annoying, let's say, where you have to go to office every day? Like, what does what is, what is that sort of culture look like in your experience? You know, there are, are some people with sizable greenhouses who live off grid and make a lot of money from their weed. And they're, in most cases, the people I know are growing it unofficially or you could say illegally but no one would put it that way out here they don't have a license to grow that many plants but they're good at it and they make money from it much more common is you grow enough for yourself plus some to barter with so you might barter for a car repair or some salvage windows you could use to improve the place you live or some meat that somebody has hunted or 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 butchered there's a lot of free-range cattle out here and they are occasionally taken um for personal use and this stuff gets traded 
there's not a lot of money in this economy. There's not a lot of jobs. There are a number of veterans living on their pension. There's people on social security disability, people on temporary assistance for needy families. You know, if people are getting one of those things, they probably have enough to live on, but it's not a very fancy life. And it's, it's really hand to mouth. And, um, and then there's interesting. So a guy I know worked in a restaurant for a few months and every two weeks he was paid a couple hundred dollars and a couple pounds of weed. And that was, you know, so it's sort of a hybrid economy of cash and marijuana. And so there's that kind of thing. It's not like other parts of the country. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, because again, you wouldn't you wouldn't see that in like Vermont or California necessarily, but it's or most part like sort of the major cities, I guess, of those states. Right. There might be some parts where you would, but not not in the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the these. There are a lot of people who are disabled, people who are on um, getting pensions, some form of public assistance. What kind of medical care are they able to get? And when they do need to pay a doctor, is there enough money to keep things running at a comfortable level? Or is it kind of a a new type of hardship for them? Medical care is a real problem out here. Um, It's hard to get to. The distances are so great. And then once you get to it, it's not necessarily the top tier of care. And if you need anything um, that's at all involved, you get sent to a city. The family I write about and rented from in my piece, the mom, Stacy, has some real problems with her back and gets sent to Denver, which is, you know, like a four-hour drive plus the cost of a motel overnight along the way. And that's you know, she can get the appointment, but it's super expensive to get there. And their truck has been out of commission for the last five months. So she skips several appointments. So these are some of the impediments to medical care that you see out here. And um, it's a big deal. People forego all kinds of treatment just because they can't make it into town or can't make it into the city that they've been told they need to go to for that specialist care. Hmm. And I, I mean, you mentioned that the care isn't always the best. Is that simply because it's hard to get doctors out into a rural area and keep them there? Or is it, again, maybe yeah. more of a... Yeah, okay. I, th- I think that is why it doesn't have, you know, the doctor salaries are low out here and the urban amenities are and you're not getting a lot of the rewards of your medical school education that you'd get in even a medium-sized city. You're just, you're just far from that. So it's hard to keep doctors out here. It's hard to keep good lawyers. Uh, I've heard in the DA's office, there's lots of, yeah, it's, it's sort of rural American 
life where things are a whole lot cheaper, but when you need something, you can't uh, often get it. Hmm. And then finally, I guess, you know, you spent a lot of time out there and you're still out there. So were there any people that you spent time with who you weren't able to include in the piece or just stories that, you know, you had to say goodbye to? Oh my gosh, 90% of them I couldn't put in the piece. And it's a long story, 10,000 words. So, um, oh, I mean, there's just so many people who are so interesting. In the story, I mentioned a man named Calvin Moreau, who uh, I guess you'd say he was homeless for many years. He now has a HUD-sponsored apartment in town, but it's being renovated. And so the the uh, housing authority arranged for him to be in an apartment, but he didn't like the idea of moving into a strange apartment for three weeks. So he, he's now squatting off grid on land um, that's not his in a nice little clearing amidst some small trees that has a little stream running through it. And I uh, was sitting in his tent with him two days ago talking about why would you put yourself through this again, you know? And he, uh, he, he didn't want to give the government any reasons to um, think he wasn't worthy. He was suspicious of the disruption to his routine. He's, he's happier when he has more control over his circumstances. And, and so he's camping out, as he puts it. Other people would say he's homeless. But he, to him, he's camping out. His story is so interesting, his whole life story. And, and he's a sentence in my piece. So, um, yeah, I'd like to um, keep uh, reporting and living out here. And, uh, and you may see something between two covers written by me uh, <laughs> before too long. All right. Well, thank you so much. This is wonderful. Thanks for the, thanks for the questions. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 